Now to the double murder trial of Alec Murdoch. The prosecution called a crime scene expert to the stand today. He described to the jury exactly where Murdoch's wife Maggie and son Paul sustained gunshot wounds, which shots were fatal, and where he thinks the shooter was standing. Our Brooke Butler joins us live from outside the Colleton County Courthouse in Brooke. This expert thinks the shooter was likely standing pretty close to Paul and Maggie. Yeah, Riley, within just a few feet of them. And as the expert described to the jury, the pain that Paul and Maggie likely felt the night of their murders, Alec Murdoch could be seen crying in the courtroom. And just a warning, some of the details in this story are graphic, so viewer discretion is advised. Alec Murdoch cried in the courtroom Thursday as crime scene expert Dr. Kenneth Kinsey described the final moments of his wife and son's lives. I believe it would have hurt him. I believe he would have been in pain. Kinsey testified he thinks Paul was standing sideways about five feet into the feed room by the Moselle Kennels when someone shot him in the chest, likely from a close distance. But the breach of the shotgun where it ejects the shot shell casing after it fires was somewhere inside the door. That gunshot exited out of Paul's shoulder. I see no possible way his arms were up when he suffered that first shotgun wound. Kinsey said blood droplets suggest after the first shot, Paul likely stood for a bit before walking to the doorway of the feed room. That's where Kinsey believes he was shot again, this time in the head. Once Paul received that second shot, he never walked again. Kinsey told the jury he thinks the second time around, the shooter shot Paul from a low angle from outside the doorway given the upper trajectory of the gunshot. But during cross-examination, defense attorney Dick Harputlian questioned that. You would agree with me, I'm bent over to do that. You are, yes sir. So the shooter was a very short person, but here I'm not bent over that far and I'm almost six foot. When it comes to Maggie, Kinsey testified she was shot a total of five times. He said two of the five gunshots were fatal. He thinks the first fatal shot came from behind. The shooter was right here, approximately right here. It burned or grazed her stomach outside to inside, went through the end of her breast, into her jaw, and then into her brain. Kinsey testified he thinks the shooter may have circled around Maggie for that second fatal shot. It was approximately here into the crown of the head. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, you can no doubt tell right from the top of the episode and the clip that just played that I'm going to be deconstructing the crime scene and crime scene behaviour in this episode. Now, it's not easy to hear, and I understand that, but this is the nature of murder. It's horrific. It's not entertainment, nor should it ever be seen as fun stories to tell. It's grisly and upsetting and distressing. It should never be about light entertainment. Two people, Maggie and Paul, were gunned down in cold blood in a planned, premeditated act. They would have experienced severe pain and been terrified and terrorised in their final moments, once they had grasped what was happening and that the killer intended not just to harm them, but to kill them. So here's your trigger warning. This is not an easy listen. For that reason, listener discretion is advised. 
Okay, so in that clip at the top of the episode, you heard the crime scene expert, Dr. Kenneth Kenzie, describing what he believed happened the night Maggie and Paul were brutally murdered. And I'm going to share with you my analysis. Now, I will give you the caveat here that I've not been privy to all the crime scene photos or the case file details. But given what's known about how they were killed, there are some really interesting things to say. Now, before I get into it, what did you make of the 911 call that Alec Murdoch made? And what did you think about my analysis? Did you hear the gear shifts for yourself that I mentioned? The 911 call is always important to assess and analyse. It can be instructive and reveal a lot about behaviour and actions or inactions, as can the timing of the 911 call. And I'm going to come on to that. Also, in this particular case, Alec Murdoch said he discovered Maggie and Paul's bodies. And there's also the police body-worn camera footage too, and the interview of Murdoch at the scene and later interrogations that I can use to assess and analyse his behaviour. So this case is behaviourally rich, and there's a lot of information to go through and analyse in this case, which takes a lot of my time. To go through it all properly, it's so detailed, and I'm sure that you appreciate that I'm sharing my knowledge and insight with you all, and I'm working all the hours to do it. As I said, my analysis is detailed and nuanced. I'm not just reading off a script. I'm sharing unique insights and analysis to move the needle in the understanding of cases and behaviour to educate and raise awareness that murders like this do not just come out of the blue. And also, sometimes with storytelling, key aspects are missed or overlooked, which for me are really important. And of course, I've talked about the fact that victims can be airbrushed out of their own case, their own murder, and just become footnotes. Also, in this case, there are so many rabbit holes you end up going down. I mean, every time I peel a layer back, I discover something else. Even in terms of Alec Murdoch's name, which is pronounced differently by so many people across the years. And what I will say is that for me, his name really isn't that important in the scheme of things. But the victims are. And in part one, I misspoke at the end of the episode. And I said Gloria Sattleworth, not Gloria Satterfield. My brain jumped, and I'm sorry for that. But I guess what that tells you is that I'm human too. Errors can and do happen, but please accept my sincere apologies for that, particularly to Gloria's family. Okay, so in this episode, I'm going to share my thoughts and analysis regarding the crime scene and also law enforcement's response. And for those of you who may be new to Crime Analyst and you've come because you're interested in this case specifically, firstly, I want to say welcome. And I also just want to let you know that I do go into the granular detail of cases, not to be gratuitous or sensationalist, but because the body and the crime scene holds up a mirror to the perpetrator or perpetrators. You see, every decision is a choice. Every action taken is a direct reflection of the perpetrator or perpetrators, and there's an imprint that betrays them. You just have to know what the signs are and how to interpret them. And that's where experience of working cases comes in. You see, a particular victim is targeted at a particular time, at a particular location, for a particular reason. Just reflect on that for a moment. And in this case, I talked about victimology in part one, and that's where I always begin, with the victims. Now, in this case, the two victims, Maggie and Paul, are from a very powerful family, arguably the most powerful and influential family in the Low Country. 
Listening to local people talk about the Murdoch family, there were many people who were intimidated and scared of the Murdochs. So that's important to remember. Context. And so the question that's uppermost in my mind right now is who would have the gumption to go onto the Murdoch property, go to the kennels and lay in wait for Maggie and Paul on the off chance that they'd be together at the dog kennels at the same time in order to be there and shoot them dead? Now bear in mind that the Murdoch sprawling estate sits on 1,700 acres of land and features a farm, two miles of river frontage for freshwater fishing and kayaking, dog kennels, plenty of turkey and deer for on-site hunting, and the custom-built home newly constructed in 2011. And it's surrounded by woods. Now, having looked at some drone footage of the Moselle property, showing the family home in relation to the dog kennels where the victims were killed, the kennels are about a quarter of a mile from the property. So that's important to know. And we also have to think about the victims and the location and the timeline, Who knew that Maggie and Paul were at the kennels at Moselle at that particular time on that particular evening? You see, when you add in the timeline, the timeline of both Maggie and Paul being there at the exact time, together, the chance of the killer or killers fortuitously stumbling upon them is highly unlikely. It's possible, but it's not probable. And remember that Maggie was living separately from Alec Murdoch at the family's home in Adisto Beach and that she'd only gone to Moselle on the night of her death reluctantly and on Alec Murdoch's request because he said that his father had been taken into hospital and he was very ill. So Maggie went to Moselle at short notice. She had texted back and forth with Paul and told him that she was having her nails done. Alec Murdoch texted and called her too. Now, Maggie had spoken with her sister Marion a number of times as well, and Marion actually persuaded Maggie to go and support Murdoch that night. So to answer the question, who knew that Maggie was there? To me, it sounds like only three people. Paul, Marion and Alec Murdoch. Now, Alec Murdoch claimed that he, Paul and Maggie had had dinner together that night. And of course, that's his narrative. And he said a lot of things about that night, many of which have been proven to be lies, and I'm going to go through and highlight some of those lies. There's evidence from text messages between Maggie and Paul that Blanca, the family housekeeper, had made dinner for Paul. At 6.01pm, Maggie texts Paul, Love you, and Blanca cooked you dinner. At 6.23 and 27 seconds, Paul texts Maggie, What did she make? At 6.23 and 48 seconds, Maggie replied to Paul, country fried steak and mac and cheese. What she doesn't say is that Blanca made us dinner and I'll be there at X time. So it doesn't sound to me like they were all having dinner together. And let's remember, Maggie and Paul were murdered in the same event and Marion, Maggie's sister who knew Maggie was at Moselle, had an alibi that night and had no motive, no means or opportunity to kill Maggie and Paul. Alex Murdoch, however, had all three. And I'm going to tell you more about that, so listen up. So I want to talk about the crime scene next, because the crime scene tells its own story about what happened. On the evening of the 7th of June 2021, Maggie got to Moselle at around 8.15pm. Paul was already there. Each of their phones, Paul's, Maggie's and Alec Murdoch's, also tell their own story about what happened that night. 
And I'm going to share and decipher those stories too. Paul was on his phone just minutes before he was killed. He was taken by surprise and didn't see it coming. There were no defensive injuries. Paul was found lying face down and his body was just outside the feed room. The killer shot him in the chest first and then the head. He was shot twice at close range with a shotgun. Now the way that Paul was killed at close range leads me to believe that Paul was likely the primary target and I believe he was shot first. And I'm sorry to be graphic here, but the first round hit him in the chest from several feet away and he was most likely heading for the door of the feed room before the second round was discharged and hit him in the neck and shoulder, which blew out Paul's brain and immediately killed him. The killer literally blew his brains out. That's why it's clear to me that he was the primary target. It was, some might say, a shocking execution-style murder. The type of shocking execution-style murder where you might conclude this was a revenge kill that's emotionally charged. A revenge kill for punishment and retribution. Maggie was shot five times, and two of those shots were fatal. It's believed that the first fatal shot came from behind. It grazed her stomach and went through her breast, into her jaw, and into her brain. The killer then circled around Maggie and shot her in the crown of the head. One of the law enforcement officers at the scene said Maggie had, and I quote, a big hole in the back of her head. The killer used an AR-style rifle. She had been shot with 300 blackout ammunition. Maggie was killed execution-style. So there were two different weapons that were used to kill Paul and Maggie and two different types of ammunition. Now, this is unusual given these circumstances, and due to this, one might infer that there were two separate shooters. Or another hypothesis that seems much more likely to me is that this was a staged crime scene. The killer wanted to make it look like it was two shooters and that it was a revenge execution. Due to this, law enforcement would look outside the home for the killers rather than inside the home. Now, I've seen this in numerous cases. The problem here is that the evidence fights itself. Now, the murder weapons were never found. In other words, whoever killed them took the weapons with them. The Murdochs had a lot of guns. In fact, they had three custom-built AR-15 blackout rifles, but only one could be accounted for after the shootings. Also, law enforcement looked for the casings at the scene, and they found older casings in the grounds, some from AR-15s which matched the casings from the crime scene. This proved it was one of the Murdoch guns that was used to kill Maggie, and not a weapon brought to the scene. Also, the blackout ammunition that was used to kill Maggie is quite rare and not typically used with AR-15s. So that's significant. The same ammunition, the same brand and calibre was found throughout the property. Federal ammunition that was used to kill Paul was much more common. So what happened to the weapons? Well, I'll come on to that. Everything about this crime scene points to 22-year-old Paul being the primary target. He was literally obliterated with a shotgun at close range. His head was blown off. That takes a lot to do that. The mechanics of doing that. Now, as I said before, people's reaction to this case, the fact that when they say, I just don't understand how Paul's father, Alec Murdoch, could ever do that. How could he ever do that? No father could or would ever do that. Well... I believe that's exactly what Murdoch was relying on. 
Knowing people as well as he did and their emotions, that was most likely his intention in my opinion, and he coolly planned and executed this. The evidence indicates to me that he staged the scene so that all the evidence pointed outside the home, to two shooters wanting revenge and retribution. And he also worked really hard to convince people that he wasn't there. He told Colleton County Sheriff Sergeant Daniel Green, who was one of the first officers on the scene, that he hadn't seen Maggie and Paul in the 45 minutes before he left to see his mother. But that was a lie. I mentioned Paul was on his phone just before he was shot dead, and I believe the lethal attack came completely out the blue. And what's more, it came out of the blue from someone he trusted. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara, and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Why do I believe this? Well, Paul's phone tells that story. At 8.44pm and 55 seconds, Paul took a video of a dog to send to a friend. On that video, you can hear Maggie's voice, Paul's voice and Alec Murdoch's voice. They're talking about one of the dogs and trying to troubleshoot what's wrong with the dog. Take a listen to this about the timing of the 911 call. 
New details tonight about the timeline of events in the Murdoch double murder case in South Carolina in which a prominent former lawyer and father of two stands accused of killing his wife and one of his sons. Senior correspondent Laura Engel has the latest on the timing of the all-important 911 call. Laura. Trace, prosecutors in the case say they have proof that shows disgraced lawyer Alex Murdoch allegedly waited an hour to call 911 after arriving at the family's hunting lodge, where he told operators he found his wife Maggie and son Paul with gunshot wounds last summer, just after 10 p.m., the night of the crime. There is a video uh, that shows Alex present at the scene, despite his denials, with Maggie and Paul at 8.44 p.m., not long before their phones ceasing meaningful activity. According to local reports, the new evidence came from a private investigator who was monitoring the Murdoch's actions while investigating a case in which Murdoch's son, Paul, was accused of killing a 19-year-old friend of his in a boating accident while allegedly under the influence in 2019. Prosecutors revealed the video allegedly places Alex Murdoch at the crime scene one hour and 15 minutes before he called 911. Did you hear anything or did you come home and find them? I've been gone. I, I just came back. So, Alec Murdoch lied about being there with them that night just before they were killed. Paul's video places his father there at the scene just minutes before he was shot dead. That's hugely significant. Murdoch was caught in a lie. So we have an understanding now of what he sounds like when he lies. That's important. And it's important to acknowledge and consider. If Murdoch lied about this... What else did he lie about? And why would he lie about this? What's the purpose of the lie? So this is really important information to assimilate going forward when analysing a case like this. And why would he leave it an hour to call 911? And for me, there's only one viable reason. It's hugely significant at 8.49pm and one second, Paul's phone locked and went dark forever. And at 8.49pm and 39 seconds, Maggie's phone locked and went dark forever. Within seconds of each other, Paul and Maggie's phones went dark. That's significant. That corroborates the likely sequence of events. Paul was killed first, unexpectedly, and then Maggie. So Paul's video directly contradicts what Alec Murdoch said on the 911 call. That 911 call that he made at 10.07pm when he said that he arrived there and discovered his wife and son had been shot badly, that was an out-and-out -out lie. And I've not finished talking about the phones just yet. There's more. Now, when Alec Murdoch was at the kennels, he didn't have his phone on him. Interestingly, his phone showed no activity between 8.09pm and 9.02pm that night. So not only was his phone not on his person, but it was dark across the time that Maggie and Paul were killed. That's significant, and it's also strange for a prolific phone user. So this, again, is when baseline behaviour is important to know. It also tells me that Alec Murdoch had thought about the murders and pre-planned them, and that he employed countermeasures to reduce the chances of being caught. That's really important and it means that everything he said and everything he did must be rigorously questioned, challenged and corroborated. His account is not credible and he can't be trusted. At 9.04pm, Alec Murdoch called Maggie's phone. She didn't answer. At 9.06pm, 
Murdoch called his father Randolph and then called Maggie again. At 9.06pm, Murdoch's car was turned on. He texts Maggie and told her that he was off to see his mother. Now my question here is if you're trying to let both Maggie and Paul know where you're going, i.e. you thought it important enough that you called Maggie more than twice, then why not just go to the kennels en route and let them know? But that's not what Murdoch did on his way to his mother's house. He just kept calling and texting. Now he arrived at his mother's house at 9.21pm. He's there for roughly 20 minutes. He called other people during that time and then he arrived back at Moselle at 10.01 and he called 911 at 10.07pm. His mother had Alzheimer's and that was his supposedly cast iron alibi. A mother with Alzheimer's. You literally cannot make this up. But even that tells me a lot about him. The fact that he thought that that would work, that that would be enough, that reveals his hubris and entitlement. Well, when you place it in context, it makes sense because previously everything Murdoch said was believed and went unchallenged. That had worked for him his entire life, so he most likely thought it would work for him again now. And I believe Murdoch thought he had taken care of the phones. Well, his phone and Maggie's at least. Maggie's phone was discovered on a roadside about a quarter mile from the crime scene the following afternoon, whilst Paul's was found resting on his back after Murdoch told the police that it fell out of his dead son's pocket when he checked on him. Now, he also said something else about that, which I found interesting, and I'll get to that in next week's episode. Now, Maggie's phone told a story of its own. Maggie's phone went dark within seconds of Paul's going dark. After 8.49pm, Paul's phone shows no more activity. However, his mother's phone continued to record movement, steps and orientation changes. Between 8.53pm and 15 seconds and 8.55pm and 32 seconds, Maggie's phone is picked up and travels 52 steps. It's counting steps and in this time it changes orientation to portrait. At 8.54pm and 32 seconds, the phone changed to landscape when it's put down. At 8.54pm and 34 seconds, the camera came on for one second. The phone was trying to do face ID. Now, if it were Maggie's face, it would most likely have unlocked. But it wasn't Maggie's face. At 8.54pm and 44 seconds, the phone is picked up and changed to portrait and activity showed steps and distance travelled at 9pm to 9.02pm, the same 9.02pm that Alec Murdoch's phone springs back to life. At 9.06pm and 20 seconds, Maggie's phone stopped recording portrait mode, and at 9.06pm and 12 seconds, the orientation changed again to portrait as the phone is lifted up. At 9.06pm and 14 seconds, there's a missed call from Murdoch and another missed call from him again at 9.06pm and 51 seconds. So just seconds later, Murdoch's phone calls Maggie's and remember his phone springs into life when Maggie's phone comes to a standstill. And that's not all. At 9.07pm, Maggie's phone display goes on and off and at 9.08pm and 58 seconds, Maggie's phone received an incoming text from Murdoch which read, Going to check on M. Be right back. Which was unread. At 9.31pm and 44 seconds, the display comes on again. And at 9.34pm and 14 seconds, there's a message from Rogan. Tell Paul to call me. Which was unread. 
Then there's another missed call from Murdoch at 9.45pm. Then Murdoch texts Maggie again at 9.47pm and 23 seconds. Call me, babe, which was unread, and he called Maggie again at 10.03pm. So in total, Murdoch called Maggie's phone four times and texted her twice in less than one hour. Now this seems somewhat excessive to me, but I would have to understand their baseline behaviour, i.e. their messages back and forth and his behaviour, to know whether this was unusual. Also, like I said, if he wanted to reach Maggie so badly, why not just pop into the kennels before he left and tell her where he was going? To me, it just seems like an oversell. And him calling Maggie babe, given that Maggie had separated from him and they were not on good terms, this seems a little forced and not authentic to me. But maybe that's how he did address Maggie. But again, I'd have to look at baseline behaviour. One thing's for sure. Murdoch certainly didn't bank on Paul's phone telling on him. Giving him away by capturing his voice on the video just minutes before Paul and Maggie were brutally and horrifically murdered. Showing that he was there when he said that he wasn't. And remember that odd phraseology I highlighted in the previous episode where Murdoch overemphasises that he wasn't there and he said it twice. That was another oversell. Here it is again. Take a listen. Okay, did you hear anything, or did you come home and find them? I've been gone. I, I just came back. Okay, and was anyone else supposed to be at your house? No, ma'am. Please hurry. Now, as I said before, that stood out to me. And the long pause and the delayed, please hurry, that was said with no urgency at all. And for me, this indicated deception. Well, now we know that he lied. And this is what he sounds like when he's lying. Now, when officers arrived at the scene and they understood that Paul and Maggie were dead and Paul's brains had been blown out and that he'd been shot several times, the question is, why? Why would someone want to do that to a 22-year-old kid and a defenceless woman? The who is the next question, but the why takes you to the whom. That's why motive is so important to determine. Why would someone want to do this? Well, the crime scene analysis revealed that this wasn't just a teach-you-a-lesson type behaviour or type offence. This reeked of pure revenge and punishment. Well, here's a reminder of what Murdoch immediately said to Officer Daniel Green the first responding officer at the scene. Central Sub-117 is secure. Got a Whiskey Fox, Whiskey Mike, both gunshot wounds to the head. Sir, I want to let you know because of the scene, I do. I did go get a gun and bring okay. it down here. It's in your vehicle? Do uh, you leaned, have any guns on you at all? Leaned, no, sir. It's leaning okay. up against the side of my car. Okay. You're, you're fine, man. You're fine. Turn around for me. I don't have any guns. Okay. Yes, sir. I see that. Okay. This is your wife and son? And son. Okay. It's bad. It's bad. I the pulses. Yes, sir. <laughs> this is the firearm you brought from inside the house? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I went and get... This is a long story. My son was in a boat wreck a, a few months back. He's okay. been getting threats. Most of it's been benign stuff we didn't take serious. Okay. Um, you know, he, he's been getting, like, punched. <laughs> um, I know that's somebody... I know that's what it is. 
how helpful and convenient of Alec Murdoch to be there and offer that up immediately. Paul had been responsible for a boat crash. He had received threats. He had been punched. And Alec Murdoch knows that's what it is. That's what he said. So the next logical inference for anyone would be that the murders were related to that and this was someone acting on that threat. And let's not forget that this isn't just some Joe Schmo. This was Alec Murdoch saying that he knew what it was. Not that he suspected, but he knew. And as I always say, language is important. And law enforcement took the bait and ran with it. They called up all the passengers in the boat crash and Stephen Smith's mother, Sandy, and asked them about it. So let's take stock here and think about the law enforcement response. They've been called by powerful, wealthy and influential Alec Murdoch. He called 911, a call that lasted just under eight minutes, and by minute three, he'd checked out and said that he was on a call, and he corrected himself and said that he had to make another call, and then promptly ended the 911 call. Then when law enforcement arrived, they established that Murdoch said he was the last person who saw the victims alive, and he was also the person who called them to say that he discovered the bodies. Then he was allowed to walk around the crime scene as he pleased. That was staggering for me to watch. And from watching the body-worn camera footage, which I recommend all of you do, many officers pitched up and were just milling about the scene too. There was no evidence of crime scene tape, and the bodies weren't cordoned off, nor were they protected. The other bizarre aspect of the case is that they all heard on the radio that there were two victims with gunshot wounds to the head, yet almost every officer caught on camera said that they didn't have any crime scene logs or paper or crime scene tape. But the 911 call was very clear about the scene that they were attending. Why were they all pitching up totally ill-equipped? To me, law enforcement seemed confused about what to do. Some of the officers are on camera discussing the Murdoch family and who they are. So some of the officers there knew exactly who they were and the power and the influence that they had. So I had to wonder, the fact that so many of them seemed ambivalent and nonchalant, was that because they just didn't want to get involved? They didn't want to put pen to paper or have their names anywhere near the case because they knew where it might well end up and they knew that it would be a headache. You see, it might not just be a training issue, but importantly, more than half an hour passed and then they decided to cordon off and seal the scene, including the two dead bodies. Now, from what I could see on the police body-worn camera footage, there appeared to be a sheet over Paul's body rather than a tarp or a tent, which is a very odd decision, particularly on a misty, rainy night. And so that's a problem, as officers are seen lifting up the sheet and walking around the bodies with no gloves, no masks, no suits, no boots, no protective clothing of any sort that I could see. I have to say, this is just wild to me. It's one thing to be inexperienced, but it's quite another in 2021 to see officers having no regard for the preservation of a crime scene or for protecting the victims. And later on, some of Murdoch's family turned up and his business partner, and they apparently walked through the scene. Then they all went down to the house later on, and the house wasn't cordoned off. Some even tidied the house up. Now, I have to say, I was getting Ramsey vibes from this. They too invited people over to their place when John Bonet was missing, which is such a puzzling thing to do when you're in crisis. You see, most people in this situation find it hard to deal with what's in front of them. There's just too much chaos and trauma. 
and they don't want to introduce more people into the equation. But not Alec Murdoch. Murdoch was controlling the narrative from the start. He made the 911 call and he immediately said on the scene that he believed the boat crash was the motive and therefore he's saying that it's his son's behaviour that's the problem. Murdoch returned to that when he was interviewed later that night in the car at the crime scene. It was a 34-minute long interview with South Carolina Law Enforcement Division Special Agent Dave Owens and Colleton County Sheriff's Office Detective Laura Rutland. Also in the vehicle at the time was Murdoch's personal attorney, Danny Henderson. Now, there were a number of puzzling and bizarre and disturbing moments in that interview. There were also numerous indicators of deception across that interview in the car and an interrogation on the 11th of August. And I'm going to take apart first the interview in the car. But not now. That's next week. And there's a lot still to unravel. But let me share this with you. When asked about Murdoch's relationship with Maggie, this is what he said. Had Maggie and Paul been arguing over anything? No. What was their relationship like? Wonderful. Wonderful. How about yours and Maggie's? Wonderful. I mean, I'm sure we had little things here and there, but we had a wonderful marriage, mm-hmm. wonderful relationship. Does that remind you of anyone? I'm going to share with you a case where the double killer said something very similar on his first interview when his pregnant wife was missing. But that's next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.